1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. This is what the Word of God has to say. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Church leadership can be a a complicated subject to talk about. Tradition and customs often have more weight in this discussion than uh, and how we how we structure our churches and how we think about leadership than even sometimes how what the what the Bible actually says about leadership. And there's always the concern when you talk about leadership. There's always the concern when you talk about authority of, of, of um, who has power and who doesn't have power, who might use that power, and what, for what purposes might they use that power. Now, the word elder is almost exclusively used in the New Testament in the plural form. There are only about four or five references or the uses of the word elder in the singular form in all of the New Testament. In fact, our passage today includes one of those few references. And in all of those few references of a single, singular elder, it is always in the context of a, um, a salutation, a reference. So here, Peter is speaking as an elder in, in the singular form, speaking about himself. Uh, and then the, the, the few others are speaking to a particular elder. And then there's one reference where it talks about, gives instructions about how you are, how the church is to deal with or handle accusations against a singular elder. elder. But in the overwhelming majority of all the other references of, to elders in the New Testament, it is always in the plural form. And though I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, it is, it is important for us to recognize that when the Bible speaks about elders, it is never about, a, in the context of church leadership, it's never singular. It's always plural. So elders, by very definition, is a plurality of, it is a group of leaders. The office of elder is sometimes referred to as overseer. Um, uh, and, and a few other references in Scripture, it's referred to as pastor. Every reference to elders recognizes the elders as the ones who have authority over and responsibility for the church. Now, the more common leadership structure among, amongst Southern Baptist churches is, is, is frankly not well reflected the biblical teaching of, of elders. If all you knew about church leadership and church governance structure was from your experience amongst Southern Baptist churches, then my guess would be that you would, from your observations, you would conclude at least two things. Number one, that the highest office, uh, as far as authoritative or um, responsibility in, in a Baptist church, generally is the office of deacon. 
And if, that's all, if only you had was the experience of Southern Baptist churches, that's a, that would be an fair assumption that you might have. And secondly, you're unlikely to even have heard the word elder at all. But if you did, or maybe you were trying to figure out, you read some of these scriptures and you're trying to figure out who it was, you would, you would assume that there's probably only one in, per church, and that must be the pastor. I have been encouraged uh, to see a reaffirmation amongst many Southern Baptists of a more biblically faithful expression of church leadership in recent years. And you may ask, and I think it's a fair question to ask, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where our church governance and our understanding of the roles and offices in the church are, are so far away from or disconnected from the biblical witness and testimony of offices and, and leadership in the church, particularly in the life of Southern Baptists? Now, the answer to that is probably much more complicated and deeper historically than we have time to deal with. My, my, my understanding of it is that there's probably, no, I don't, not probably, there's none of us alive that remembers when it was different in Southern Baptist life, which means it's been around a very long time. My guess is, is that um, how we have structured our church leadership has been greatly influenced by practical and logistical efforts more than an overt rebellious um, attitude towards Scripture. So my point is, I don't think anybody set out to, to disobey Scripture. I don't think Southern Baptists in, in effort tried to say, we, we know this to be true, but we're going to do this instead. I think it, we are a result of practical, logistical responses to different things over the years. And, and in so doing, we found ourselves where we are today. Where do we go from here? When you deal with subjects like this, where our application does not fit well with Scripture's declaration, we have two choices. One is we can ignore the biblical teaching. So if you employ that, then when you get to a passage like this, you just read over it fast. You say, well, I don't know how that applies to us, or you just don't talk about it at all. Or secondly, you faithfully teach and preach the biblical truth, even if it makes you uncomfortable. And that's where I want to be for us today. We ought to be okay. We ought to, be, we ought to find comfort in dealing with passages that make us uncomfortable. That's the nature of Scripture as it draws us to, constantly pointing us to being more faithful to the Word of God. We know that the more faithfully we obey God's Word, the more the church will be affected, uh, effective and blessed. Thus today, I intend to be as faithful to this passage as possible, knowing that we do not perfectly reflect this teaching and, and may find some of this teaching uncomfortable at times. But I do so that we might constantly examine our faithfulness to God's Word and constantly be moving toward a more faithful expression and obedience to it. So with that said, here's, the, here's how I'm going to divide just thinking about the office of elder in the life and the ministry of the church. Two things about the needs of the church and then one about what motivates the elder. First, the church needs shepherds. And I'm going to make a case that leadership in the church, faithful biblical leadership in the church is needed for the church to be obedient to its call and to be effective in its, in its witness. The church needs shepherds. Secondly, the church needs oversight. As unpleasant as that may be, Managers and bosses and overseers are important in a fallen world uh, to keep us faithful to our tasks. And then lastly, I want to speak about what motivates an elder to be an elder. And uh, 
why an elder does what they, what they do. So let's begin with the church needs shepherds. Now I want to draw your attention back to the very beginning of this passage where Peter is giving instructions. And he says that he, um, he says as an elder, he is giving the charge. In verse 2 he says, and this is the most simple, basic charge, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. Now, as we talk about the church needing shepherds, there's some understanding of how the shepherds are to function amongst the church. And the word here is that they are to shepherd the, the flock of God. And so the idea here is that, um, that, that shepherds or elders must shepherd the flock to serve the Lord. This is an act of a leader, not exercising personal dominion, but exercising service and obedience to the Lord. So they do their work amongst the church as unto the Lord or to serve the Lord. Peter's writing to the church elders as a fellow elder, encouraging them to be about their calling to shepherd the flock. Peter preferences his commands with the hope of salvation and the promise of heaven, he says, because he knows the sufferings of Christ and the glory to be revealed. But then he commands them to lead the church. His command to lead the church begins and ends with Jesus. He says, first, the church be begins with the, sal the salvation that comes uh, through Jesus alone. And then leadership of the church will end when Jesus returns. So in other words, because we have salvation, and until Jesus returns, shepherd the flock. Notice also whose flock is to be shepherded. Peter doesn't say, shepherd your flock. And he doesn't even say, shepherd my flock. No, notice what he says. He says, shepherd the flock of God. An elder's work is amongst the flock of God. The work of shepherding is the work amongst the flock of God. Those that Peter was writing to would likely have been familiar with the work of shepherds. The work of a shepherd meant that they did not generally own the sheep that they were leading. They were hired by the owner to, to, to manage, to provide for, to take care of the sheep. Their labor was not for themselves. Their labor was for the owner of the flock. And they would eventually give a response to a, account for the sheep that they were in charge of. That's the idea. That's the image here. Shepherd the flock of God. Not yours, but of God. The elders in the church, their labor is not for themselves. The elders labor, they shepherd as unto the Lord alone. The shepherd has two main duties amongst the, the sheep, to lead them to food and water and to protect them from predators. Shepherd the flock of God as unto the Lord, as a service unto the Lord. Now when you think about this concept, not only are they to, to serve the Lord, but it requires that they lead the church. One of the most beloved passages in Scripture is Psalm 23. In fact, it's one of those psalms you likely can quote uh, for memory. It speaks of the Lord, God, as our great shepherd. In the first three verses of the psalm, it speaks of how the shepherd leads the flock. 
It leads them to food. And in verse 3, in verse 2, he says, he makes them, makes me lie down in green pastures. The idea that the shepherd is taking the flock and leading them to where those pastures are that they might eat. In the second part of verse 2, he says, he leads me beside still waters, that he provides for the sheep to, to, to drink and find a place where they can restore themselves. In verse 3, it says that he leads toward righteousness. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Dear friends, the elders of the church are to lead the church. Lead the church to God's truth through faithful teaching and preaching. Lead the church to drink from the well of God's grace. Lead the church to be faithful to God's word and obey his commands. In a fallen world, listen to me carefully, in a fallen world, leadership is a requirement. For the church to do well and to be faithful before the Lord, it must be, it must have elders who will shepherd and lead the church well. There is a falsehood that we often give ourselves in to think we don't need anybody to tell us what to do. If you're in a classroom, you think, I don't really need a teacher to tell me what to do. I can learn this on my own. If you're on the job site, I don't need the job, to, the, the boss to come by. I can take care of this on my own. In so many areas of our life, we're, we're oft, oftentimes when there is good leadership, we often think, I don't need leadership to help me do this or to make me do this. But you know the reality of it is in a fallen world, if there's not oversight, if there's not leadership, things don't happen. Students don't learn. <laughs> They don't complete their assignments. Employees don't finish the task. And dear friends, even in the church, we need leaders to, elders to lead to the word of God, to the righteousness of God. Certainly we need leaders to protect. Shepherds not only lead to food and water, they also lead and uh, protect the flock from the predators that surround in Psalm 23, verse 4, it speaks of God's protection and his discipline. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Fear comes when there is an awareness of danger. But in this psalm, David writes in Psalm 23, that even though danger is around the valley of the shadow of death, he fears no evil. Now, he doesn't fear because the good, he doesn't fear because the good shepherd stands between him and the enemies that surrounds him. But, but notice the lack of, uh, the reason for the lack of his fear. The reason for the lack of his fear is because the comfort that comes from the shepherd's rod and staff. Now, in general terms, now, when we think of a pastoral scene, we think of a beautiful scene with green grass and a shepherd standing there um, calmly, and he's got his staff in his hand, and we, we see that as a very tranquil, peaceful scene. But the, but the shepherd's rod and the shepherd's staff were not necessarily peaceful instruments. The rod was used as a defensive weapon and, a, and sometimes an offensive weapon against predators. The staff was used to, to push, to prod, sometimes to hit the sheep, to make them go where they needed to go, to keep them from going where they wanted to go. And yet David says the rod and staff, he knew well what it was to shepherd sheep, and he says the rod and staff, they, they comfort me. Protection of the shepherd comes from staying close to the shepherd. In order for that staff to get a hold of you, you have to be close to the shepherd. 
The protection of the shepherd comes from the, the discipline of the shepherd, to striking of the, uh, of the sheep to correct and, and direct the sheep, the defense of the shepherd uh, using the weapon of the rod to defend against the predators. And likewise, in the church, the elders of the church must protect the flock by staying close to the people and the people close to the elder, correcting and disciplining and keeping watch for and defending against those who would seek to harm the church. Dear friends, the church needs shepherds. And secondly, the church needs oversight. So notice what he says to the shepherds. First command, shepherd the flock. That's verse 2. That is among you. And then he says, secondly, exercising. In other words, this is your active duty as you shepherd, exercising oversight. Now, there's two ways I think that this exercising oversight comes to play. And the first is to exercise oversight that the church might obey Jesus. Authority, power, and oversight are uncomfortable subjects in the church And I think that's true because of two reasons. One, we have a general uncomfortableness with assuming this role. So there's an uncomfortableness with people saying, I want to be in charge. I, I want to be an overseer. And then secondly, there's a general fear of the misuse of authority. So It doesn't matter what group of people you're in, whether it be secular or spiritual. If you gather people together, there will be stories amongst them of someone at some time using their authority, their their, their power in a a wicked, evil way. And so there's a natural response to that as well. We don't want to make sure that never happens again. Particularly with the general fear of misuse of authority. I don't think there's any accident here that Peter gives three negative statements to limit or direct how the elder is to exercise oversight. So if you've ever lived or worked or served under someone who used their authority in a wicked manner, in an unrighteous manner, these things will resonate with you. So so Peter says, not under compulsion, not, not for shameful gain, in other words, selfish gain, and not domineering. We would all go amen to that. But he also gives three positives as to how the elder is to exercise oversight. Willingly, eagerly, and as an example. Now I think the foundation of the three negatives and the three positives is that the oversight of the elders is to be focused on leading the church of God to obey Jesus. So not under compulsion, but willingly obey God's call on your life. Here's the idea. He's speaking to men who've been called of God. So you you, you don't take up this task under compulsion. You don't take up this task dragging your feet, wishing you could do something else. No, you willingly obey God's call in your life to exercise his authority and to lead the church. It's an example of obedience, even as shepherds shepherd. Not for personal gain, but eagerly for the glory of God. In other words, your work here is not that you can advance yourself. Your work here is not that you can get ahead. Your work here is not that you can push others down. Your work here is ultimately for the glory of God in your life and in the life of the people you serve and you lead. Peter says, not domineering for your own will, but live as an example, as one submissive to Jesus. Peter, excuse me, Paul would say in multiple times in the New Testament, imitate me. And I think that ought to be the 
the heartbeat of every believer, but certainly it ought to be the, the, uh, the heartbeat of an elder who says, listen, imitate me. Not that I've got everything right or perfect, but my life is devoted to submitting everything I have for the glory of God and being obedient in every way I can to the command and call of God and the law of God. So if you're imitating me, I'm chasing after Jesus and you'll chase after him too. The first priority of the oversight of elders is to lead the church to be obedient to Jesus. And I think secondly here we can see it is a, it is a call to, to oversight, to, to draw the church to joyfully sacrifice. I think there's another element here to the oversight. In the last word of instruction to, when, when Peter says, and be an example to the flock. Shepherds often have to put their needs behind the needs of the flock. Eat last, drink last, stay up later, get up earlier. Likewise, elders often must sacrifice their needs and pleasures for the sake of the flock's needs. The way the elders model this for the church is an example to follow. Peter says, living or being an example to the church. To be an elder requires sacrifice. But one who has surrendered their life to Jesus joyfully sacrifices according to however the Lord commands. Here's the idea I think that's happening. Now, he starts with willingly, joyfully, being, a sac- being uh, uh, sacrificing or being an example for the church. And I think the idea here is, elders, listen, there's some difficulties, there's some unpleasantries, there's some hardships about being an elder. But joyfully, willfully, as an example, live a sacrificial life as an example to the church. Draw the church to be obedient to God's word and draw the church to be joyfully sacrificial. To be an elder comes with many hardships and few earthly rewards. But the one who loves the Lord will eagerly surrender all for him. To be an elder requires that you be uh, out in front and lead, but the one who knows Jesus knows that the greatest of the kingdom is the least. Serving the Lord in any capacity is not an opportunity for self-advancement, but an opportunity for joyful sacrifice. Elders must lead the way, must lead the way in using their authority as an example to follow. Follow in joyful sacrifice. Follow in obedience to the Lord. The church needs shepherds. The church needs oversight. But I want you to notice one other thing out of this passage, and that is how how Peter then talks about what motivates the elders to do this work. Notice with me there in the very last part of the passage that we read. Verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, in that short verse, there is a, there is a I think, um, a word of accountability and a word of encouragement, both in the same passage. And, and I want to speak about it in the sense of for Uh, The church is for God's glory, and therefore the work of an elder is ultimately for the glory of God. Now, two things here. 
First and foremost is that all of us will stand one day accountable before Jesus. Amen? That's true of every believer. But there is an understanding in Scripture that the greater authority, the greater responsibility you have, the greater accountability you have as well. And Peter says, listen, there's coming a day when, 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 the, when the great shepherd returns. Now, there's an, there's an understanding here. Whose flock are you shepherding, elder? You're shepherding the flock of God. And when God returns, you'll give an account, just like every shepherd has when he returns the, the flock to the, the owner of the, of the flock. Are, are all the sheep there? Are, have they been well fed? Have they been well watered? Have they been protected well? And there's coming a day when the great shepherd will come and we will stand accountable before Jesus. What motivates the elders is that the church will be what Jesus desires the church to be when he returns. Jesus will return. Verse 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, not if, not, not, not maybe, but, but when. And when the, shepherd, the chief shepherd appears, all those who shepherded his flock will and must give an account of how they led his flock. These are yours, Lord. These are yours. The heart of an elder must be to please the Lord. Please the Lord in how well his flock was fed and led and protected. The elder must, will not give an account to the church. The elder will not give an account to other elders. And the elder certainly won't give an account to the world. But the elders will give an account to the Lord. And friends, there's an element of motivation there. There's coming a moment of accountability. There's coming a moment where you will answer for what you have, how you've been obedient to the call and how you have acted in, under your call. That motivates. Secondly, dear friends, there's a motivation for the glory of God. So I think this is both focused to the elder and to the Lord when he says in verse 5, You will receive the unfading, in other words, it doesn't tarnish or diminish, the unfading crown of glory. Now that sounds like, and I think it is, a reward, a celebration, an honor for the elder. Lead God's church well, and you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But dear friends, I think that's ultimately for God's glory. Because all the crowns, all the things that we receive as a testimony to our obedience and to our righteousness are crowns that we receive that we might give an offering to God in eternity. When Jesus returns, reward of the elder's labor will be the unfading crown of glory. This crown of glory is not for the, the glorification of the elder. Ultimately, this crown is for the glorification of Jesus. And I think this points to the fact that the, what motivates the work and labor of the elders of the church is that Jesus might receive glory today and glory in eternity. When the church obeys God's word, Jesus is glorified. When the church uh, perseveres in faith, Jesus is glorified. When elders rule well, Jesus is glorified. How do you know when you're doing well before the Lord? Jesus is glorified. Protecting the President of the United States of America 
is an overwhelming cost. The details of how much we spend on the protection of the president are not quite, they're not known specifically. And in recent years, that cost has skyrocketed for two main reasons. One, because of the sophistication of the attacks has grown, so has the sophistication of how we protect the president have grown, and the number of protectees have grown. There was a day when it was just the president and his wife, maybe his children, and now it's children and much longer and, and more people being protected. Now it's interesting when we think about that in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a political sense in that um, we don't fight over the cost of protecting the president as a political or partisan issue. I hope you don't anyway. So I hope when it's your person in the White House, you go, yeah, we ought to protect him. And when it's not your person in the White House, you go, no, we shouldn't protect him. And the reason why we don't see that as a partisan issue is because we understand that the protection of the president isn't about politics in the sense of a political party. It is about the stability of our nation. One of the oldest, oldest, oldest strategies of war is to seek and out and destroy leadership. Seek out and destroy leadership. And if you can destroy the leadership, you've won the battle. And so as a nation, we spend a lot of money protecting our chief executive, knowing that his, his well-being is in part connected to the well-being of our own nation. We've watched in real time in recent weeks this very thing playing out in Ukraine as the Ukrainians have made great efforts to protect their president, knowing that the invading army of Russia is trying very much to take out their president because that would be very advantageous to their, to their efforts. The need for leadership is part of living in a fallen world. Oh, dear friends, I think it would be most glorious and wonderful if we didn't need leadership, we didn't need pastors, we didn't need overseers and elders. We could just all stand before the throne of God, worship Him in full obedience and total submission and rejoice in His presence. Now, I got a good word for you. That day's coming. There are no elders in heaven, amen? There's a lot of positions that we have here on earth that will not be in heaven. Won't be, not that there's, they're bad, there just won't be need for elders in heaven. We will stand before the throne and we will worship the king and he will perfectly rule over us and we will perfectly obey him. That's gonna be a good day. But until that day, we need God's ordained, God's given leadership within the church. Leaders who are leading according to the Word of God. Leaders who lead for the blessing and well-being of the church. Leaders who are leading as unto the Lord. And as we move more faithfully in the testimony of Scripture and the leadership of our church, the church is blessed and we find more effectiveness in this world. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, 
go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 10.30 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.